3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
4: And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of psychedelics with a special focus on psilocybin mushrooms. Um, So in the last episode, if you haven't heard that yet, you should probably go back and listen to that one first. That's where we lay the groundwork Mm -hmm. for a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, where we ended up talking about a little bit about the history of psychedelics, uh, about where we stand in that history, which we'll explore more over the next couple of episodes. Uh, We talked about... A lot of the common features of the psychedelic experience and what those reported features have in common with, say, uh, what William James described as the mystical experience or the religious experience. So we talked about like the ideas of the psychedelic experience being ineffable or hard to put into words, often having this quality of veridicality or the noetic quality seeming Mm -hmm. like it isn't just an experience but that it somehow imparts true
3: information to you right and then we also just talked about in general uh, terms like what is a drug mm-hmm. what do, what does this term drug mean and why do we apply it to some substances uh, that have a physiological effect on us and not to others right uh, and then what indeed is a psychedelic and uh, and again all those properties that we typically associate with the psychedelic experience
4: right and one of the funny things is when i was growing up i thought of drugs as one class of things that are all equally bad Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all equally scary. And, of course, this was, you know, United States drug policy conditioning as it filtered through into the education system. Uh, and, And in a way, you can kind of understand, like, you know, you want kids to be aware of the dangers of messing with addictive substances. You don't want kids trying out uh, you know, heroin or cocaine or even tobacco, really, you know, <laughs> like oh yeah,
3: I mean, uh, yeah, as a, as a father, I t- I totally get that,
4: yeah. Uh, uh but, but then all these other things get lumped in with that stuff,
3: right? And yeah, I mean, we could certainly a lot has been said, a lot has been written, and we could probably spend a whole time just dissecting the war on drugs and what uh what didn't work um and just sort of the some of the problematic aspects of of the messaging because uh, i remember growing up and going to these like the dare rallies at school um this was a like a u.s educational outreach program mm-hmm. um to, to keep kids off of drugs and and there was this it, it did feel like drugs were just the enemy and then anything else you might be ta- like there was medication Drugs certainly wasn't something that would uh, – a term that would be used to describe Tylenol or anything. Um, but uh, but yeah, in, in doing this, you end up like like just vilifying all of these substances uh, and and making – and also perhaps making them uh, more appealing in a certain uh, sense, you know, because mm-hmm. you're telling all these kids, no, this is dark, dangerous stuff. Don't get near the dark magic um, of drugs. Uh, and, and at the, the same time, it can lead to this false impression that drugs were – a product of the 1960s, or oh, at yeah. least of the of the the, the mid 20th century, that uh, we had like a time before drugs, and then suddenly uh, here come uh, you know here comes the psychedelic counterculture, here comes the marijuana. Marijuana, of course, uh, came in earlier. Uh, and, uh, same can be said of cocaine uh, and uh, and opium and uh, and so forth. But but still, there is you could easily get this false idea in your head that these were products of modern society. They yeah. were new modern problems, and certainly there are versions. Of these substances that were modern, and problems that they introduced were thoroughly modern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for instance, uh, you know, things like when you t- start talking about like crack cocaine or you start talking about uh, heroin, um, you know, those are the more modern twists on uh, on very old organisms, you know, going back to the poppy seed or the, the cocoa plant.
4: Yeah, and even referring to the more psychedelic substances, not say like opium-based alkaloids or something like that, but, uh, you know, uh, psilocybin and LSD, LSD was – In a way, kind of invented. It is a compound that was isolated from the ergot in 1938, I think it was. And Mm -hmm. then first, you know, Albert Hofmann figured out what it was in the 1940s. So that was kind of new. But – psychedelics in general were not new. It's certainly been around. They've been used by humans for hundreds or
3: thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about organisms. Uh, We're talking about species that evolved to thrive in our world. And, uh, you know, take psilocybin, for instance. Uh, Again, it's found in some 200 different varieties of uh, 200 different species of mushrooms. And um, exactly why they have these properties is still something that scientists are are. Looking into, but uh, according to a 2018 study from Ohio State University, uh, the psychedelic properties of uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms may, may have evolved as an appetite suppressant to deter insects that frequented the the animal dung from which the mushrooms grew. Hmm. Uh, which is which is interesting, uh, yeah, because that is that's not even a a quality of a uh, psychedelic experience that we even touched on in the previous episode. Uh, but there is an appetite suppressant that is taking place as well.
4: So maybe a lot of the classic effects that we identify as psychedelic are merely byproducts of the uh, of the compounds that. The primary evolutionary purpose of which is an appetite
3: suppressant. Though that that's just a hypothesis, right? Yeah, this is a hypothesis. Uh, Yeah, it's still still an open question. But Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's no such thing (laughs) as LSD munchies, right? Uh,
4: (laughs) I mean, there are funny enough. There are much weirder hypotheses. I mean, much weirder ones that. Uh, a lot of the – in the last episode, we talked about the people with the sort of microcentric worldview who mm-hmm. come to see uh, – you know, like Terrence McKenna and the people who come to see mushrooms as some in some way kind of secretly running the world. And uh, some of these people, you know, they'll get into ideas of how, well, really the reason – that psilocybin uh, exists. You know, this compound has these effects on us. Is that it evolved as some kind of communication mechanism, mm-hmm. where the mush, you know, the the fungus world is trying to break through to us because we're the like dominant moving species that controls energy and ecosystems, and it's trying to get through to us and open our minds to its priorities
3: yeah it's inter- uh, it's interesting now, you know certainly we're not going to get into the question of whether <laughs> um psilocybin containing mushrooms are gods um I th- or whether they're conscious or whether they're conscious, well
4: but, actually, no, I think maybe Eduardo Cohn might have something to say about that, but
3: he does yeah, uh, yeah and we'll touch on that a little later uh, but even but I don't want to associate him too much with this um with, this, right, with right, right with the um, you know the the sort of more extreme version of this, but in terms of just associating psilocybin uh, and psychedelics with gods. There's nothing new about that, and we'll get into that uh, as we uh, go here. Uh, One of the, the connections that McKenna makes in his stoned ape hypothesis is that since you have psilocybin growing out of the, the dung of herbivores, namely cattle, mm-hmm. uh, this would have been something that would have um, become uh, obvious to peoples that were rearing cattle in the ancient world. Right. And then it would have traveled with them as they brought their cattle with them. And he makes a case... I'm not sure exactly how strong it is for the various uh, cattle gods of antiquity, Mm. Uh, you know, the sort of, you know, horned gods. The golden calf. Yeah, Yeah. part of their association is with the psilocybin mushrooms that would have been almost like the milk of the animal, like the animal produces meat, the animal produces milk, the animal produces this substance that allows us to engage in a mystic experience.
4: Uh, That's an interesting potential ecological relationship. I mean, the same way that... Uh, zoonotic diseases follow human civilization where they've got domesticated animals, right? Because mm-hmm. they're in close proximity to certain domesticated animals, the diseases that affect those animals have a greater likelihood of jumping over into, you know, into the into human strains, right? Um, but you could say the same thing about things that are not diseases, but other follow-on
3: organisms, for example, psilocybin mushrooms, right? Right. Yeah. Now, to be clear, I think you know as we've discussed in the show before, I think it's always. Um, too tempting to try and point to a single thing as being like the prime motivator in the creation of mythologies and the genesis of gods. And right. so, um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm open to the idea that psilocybin could have played a role in the character of some of these gods. And we do see specific gods, as we'll discuss, that have clear iconography associated with psychedelic substances. Oh yeah, uh, But of course there are, uh, there's so many other uh, processes going on in the generation of uh, divine entities in the human mind. Well one interesting question at least interesting
4: to me is the question of why did we start taking these substances. Mm-hmm. Clearly the use of psilocybin goes way back into history and we'll talk sort of about the natural and cultural history of of uh, psilocybin especially in a in a bit but like why what benefit biologically would there have been to doing this? I mean is it something that humans do uh, just as a sort of like byproduct of the way their brains work, and there is no real biological benefit, or is there a biological benefit that maybe we don't fully recognize? Is there an adaptive reason to take psychedelic drugs?
3: Yeah, because a lot of times we think of these substances as being, especially in the Western context, you know, purely recreational, purely even hedonistic. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're seeing out of the, the especially the more recent studies, and, and even the studies of the the nineteen fifties and sixties. And it's also not what we see in traditional societies that use them. Right. There was an attempt; to, you know, these were used very seriously as a means of solving problems and uh, uh, communing with the mystical world, et cetera.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And and so you can, I mean, one thing that automatically sticks out there for me is that. If there is some kind of adaptive value to these things, it could have some kind of uh, you know social reinforcement role, right? You mm-hmm. know, this is a common kind of thing. You say, "What is the value of X cultural practice?" Very often, you could say, "Well, maybe it strengthens strengthens social bonds in some way. You know, m- helps groups work together better, um, right. help, helps them share information and bond better, so that they're more effective as a hunting team or something like that." Right. Uh, so that's a possibility, but we don't know that's the case. But another way of thinking about it is, could we better understand the uses of psychedelics in humans and the reasons for those uses by looking at the effects of psychedelics in other animals? Uh, so for one thing, there are some people in the world that actually give psychedelic drugs to domestic animals for ritual and practical purposes. And there, there's one example I came across that I thought was a really interesting study. This is a study by Bradley Bennett and uh, Rocchio Alarcone called Hunting and Hallucinogens, the Use of
3: Psychoactive and Other Plants to Improve
4: the Hunting Ability of Dogs. So this is
3: giving psychedelic substances to animals with a purpose that's yeah. of, that's not research-related but also not... Um, purely recreational, like some of these videos you see of, say, squirrels allegedly consuming uh, psychedelic mushrooms.
4: Right, yeah. So this would be something parallel to an adaptive value in a hunting scenario. And uh, so this uh, paper was in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology in 2015. So the authors here looked at the use of psychoactive substances by two tribes in South America, the Shuar and the Quichua of Ecuador, who are reported to give hallucinogenic plants to their hunting dogs in order to improve their hunting ability. And the authors find that this practice is prevalent and they think it's likely adaptive. Now, what good would it do to give a hunting dog a hallucinogen, right? It would seem to me, if you didn't think too deeply about it, that just seems counterproductive, right? It's going to make the dog distracted, probably less
3: effective. Right. Yeah. The idea is that what it would would alter its perception of reality, but doesn't it need a fine-tuned perception of reality in order to do its hunting? Exactly.
4: But the authors, quote, hypothesize that hallucinogenic plants alter perception in hunting dogs by diminishing extraneous signals and by enhancing sensory perception, most likely olfaction or the sense of smell, Mm. that is directly involved
3: in the detection and capture of game. Now, this is interesting because we always have to recognize that a dog is a far more... Uh, smell-based creature yes. then than we can re- really almost uh, more de- it's more, more smell-based than we can imagine. Yeah, like uh you know we're such a visual species mm-hmm. and uh, and certainly uh, psychedelics are going to alter the sense of smell. Uh, we we discussed that briefly uh, last time. Like you smells may change, smells may seem strange, uh-huh. and uh, imagine that in a creature for whom smell is this really rich uh, means of sensing the external world. Yeah, exactly. I
4: mean, I think. In the same way that a psychedelic experience is often ineffable, there's this quality to it that you can't describe once it's over and communicate to other people. I think probably the sense experience of other kinds of animals, animals like dogs, is probably uh, ineffable and and ununderstandable from our point of view. Like you, there's no way for you to picture or put yourself into – the level of chemosensitivity of a dog, their, you know, their level of engagement with all of the chemical signals going on around them that we only get this tiny, blunt, faint kind of whiff of. yeah um and, and so, yeah, so that's obviously an important part of their hunting perception. But of course, they have other senses too. They've got hearing and smell and all that. So maybe what's going on, again, we don't know this. This is just what the authors hypothesize. You know, in the last episode, we talked about how mm-hmm. one of the common reported effects of uh, taking psilocybin as a hallucinogen is the experience of heightened perceptions like, you know, colors might seem more more vivid or brighter, or you might feel like you have a more acute sense of hearing. Um, It's hard for me to imagine that like the you know, you actually have greater resolution in your eyeballs for sight, but there might be something going on in the brain where suddenly more power is devoted to noticing detail in what you see or something like that. Um, and so you can imagine maybe the same is true in these hunting dogs. Maybe, you know, brain power gets sort of reorganized in a way where there's new levels of attention to detail and smell that would normally be dedicated to other senses or other distracting mental processes. But then again, we don't know that's the case. That's just right. an interesting possibility for what's going on here if this is in fact adaptive, which the authors think it probably is. Uh, the author is also right. <laughs> this is funny uh, that uh, quote, if this is true, plant substances might also enhance the ability of dogs to detect explosive drugs, human remains, and other targets for which they are valued. Oh, so interesting. Uh, so the drug dogs will now be
3: given <laughs> <laughs> will be given drugs, yeah, yeah, this is interesting and a possible future in which um, say, explosive sniffing dogs will be uh, microdosing. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or perhaps a macro dosing in order to find uh, what they're looking for. Uh, uh, we do want to stress that we are not uh, encouraging anyone out there to uh, take a psychedelic substance and attempt to carry out any particular tasks in their life.
4: Um, no, we're also not encouraging people to dose their pets or correct. domestic animals with Substances you might not know the effects of. I mean, it, we, that's just not advisable.
3: But this this does remind me. Uh, so, so, of course, microdosing is this what's supposed trend in like Silicon Valley and right. so forth, and where you take
4: a little bit LSD, a little bit of
3: some sort of psychedelic, in order to like, give you what some supposed slight edge on whatever your coding job happens to be, et cetera. And uh, and I don't know. I haven't looked at the, the the research on that to see if there is any research on that to, to say exactly how that holds up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it yeah, no, I don't know either. Re- it does remind me of a recent uh, Saturday Night Live sketch in which there was a there's a film reviewer who appears on Weekend Update who instead of uh, micro dosing to go review films is macro <laughs> So he's taking like a colossal amount of psychedelics and then going and seeing just whatever the Hollywood films of the day happen uh-huh. to be and then having these just crazy um, reviews of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I-, I recommend everybody uh, check that out. Uh, I haven't seen that one. Now, uh, I think something that's interesting about this hunting dog study though is that it it kind of like roughly falls in line with some of the arguments that McKenna made back in 93 in Food of the Gods for psilocybin uh, aiding humanity's ancestors along three different levels. Uh-huh. So, But but one of the, the key areas is uh, he was pointing to the work of psychopharmacologist Roland L. Fisher uh, saying, quote, small amounts of psilocybin consumed with no awareness uh, of its uh, psychoactivity while in the general act of browsing for food and perhaps later consumed consciously impart a noticeable increase in visual acuity, especially edge detection. As visual acuity is at a premium among hunter-gatherers, the discovery of the equivalent of, quote, chemical binoculars could not uh, fail to have an impact on the hunting and gathering success of those individuals who availed themselves of this advantage.
4: That's interesting, yeah. Yeah,
3: Um, and, uh, and he also argues that at higher doses... Restlessness and sexual arousal uh, would have played a, a role. And then finally, shamanistic ecstasy would have, uh, would have, uh, of course, been an important uh, part. And it clearly was an important part of uh, the use of psychedelics for early people. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that this paper really backs up McKenna in any meaningful way here. And I'm also not sure if his interpretation of Fisher's work is completely fair or if he's leaning into his assumptions on this. Uh-huh. But, you know, if, if psilocybin makes a hunting dog slightly better at hunting, or a hunter-gatherer slightly better at their thing, then I think this is kind of interesting. I mean, the, sa- the same case can, can and is made for natural substances that work as stimulants, which, of course, are, are widely used through human culture. And, uh, you know, for every employee out there who's not micro-dosing uh, with uh, psilocybin, everybody else is uh, micro or macro-dosing with caffeine. Yeah. ultra-dosing on caffeine, yeah. yeah. Or, um, goodness, I, I remember hearing tales of, like, the older newsrooms, uh, where a cigarette mate was a, was a request where someone mm-hmm. would be like working on a deadline and they're drinking coffee and they need somebody to actually like stick the cigarette in their mouth to give so that and light yeah. it up for them so they can have the, the nicotine rush to finish their job. Or even the cliche of the use of cocaine in business and wall street. Yeah. Or, and before that, the, uh, you know, I've heard tales of, you know, of laborers, you know, being, ex- depending on cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, back, uh, back in the day as being uh, like a primary mean of just getting through the, the labor of the day. And of course, uh, in the armed forces of the 20th and 21st centuries, you see a lot of use of stimulants. Yeah. Certainly, uh, we've talked about this on the show before, the use of stimulants by the Nazis during the Second World War uh, was pretty extensive, especially in the Luftwaffe. And, and t- today you still see variants, uh, various stimulants that are designed for use on long flights mm-hmm. um, in military contexts.
4: All right. Well, I think maybe we should take a break. And then when we come back, we will talk a little bit about animal self-administration of hallucinogens.
3: All right, we're back. So uh, before we get into the self-administration of psychedelics by animals, just a quick reminder that animals in general are known to make use of various chemicals in their environment. It may be something more internal, like a poison dart frog acquiring its toxicity via the Plants that it consumes, or it could be something like um, lemurs that uh, take a centipede, crush it, and uh, spread the uh, uh, the toxicity of the of, of this species on their fur, uh, presumably to keep insects away. Mm-hmm. So there, there are plenty of cases like that where it's either a more complex part of the the creature's physiology, or it is something that they are doing almost like tool use of the toxins in their environment. A great example of this I remember from our
4: squirrels episodes was the the ground squirrel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't remember. I think some Western United States or Western North American ground squirrel Uh, has a strategy for avoiding its uh, rattlesnake predators, which is finding discarded rattlesnake skins after the snake sheds its skin, chewing that up and rubbing it all over its body and the bodies of its young. Oh,
3: wow. Yeah, that's brilliant.
4: But so uh, these are all, you know, self-administrations of chemicals by animals. So would animals take psychedelic drugs given the opportunity? Do do they just seek these things out and consume them voluntarily? It's one thing if maybe an animal consumes a hallucinogen by accident, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just uh, there's a psychedelic compound in their environment and they happen to eat it while they're foraging versus behaviors where it really does seem like they're actively seeking it out. And after they have the experience once, try to repeat it. Have you ever seen the movie The Bear?
3: No, I haven't. Uh, so I forget the French director's name. He directed the original The Name of the Rose. Um, but uh, but the, the Bear, I remember, is being a, a very fun film about this, this bear using lots of like real bears used in the film. But there's a sequence in which the bear eats a psychedelic mushroom and uh, has a, a psychedelic experience. And it's pretty wonderful. If you, if you don't see the whole movie, uh, I recommend everyone check out that sequence uh-huh. uh, on like YouTube if it's still out there.
4: Well, uh, the bear would not be alone in the animal kingdom, it turns out. So there is a paper that I want to refer to here from the International Journal of Addictions. This is from 1973. So a lot of thinking about drugs has changed since then. But this does document some, like, recorded animal behaviors uh, that are pretty interesting. So this is called An Ethological Search for Self-Administration of Hallucinogens uh, by Ronald K. Siegel. And so it's been reported previously by Wasson in 1968, who we'll learn a bit more about later in the episode, that reindeer often self-administer hallucinogenic mushrooms known as Amanita muscaria uh, or fly agaric. And uh, they they will find these mushrooms when they're available and they will eat them. So if you've never seen what these look like, they're worth looking up. They're kind of the classic like toadstool looking mushroom, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of the red and white spotted cap. Uh, And the reindeer are also known, interestingly, to try to ingest the urine of humans who have been consuming this same species of mushroom for psychedelic purposes. Uh, Wasson wrote in 1968, quote, When human urine or mushrooms are in the vicinity, the half-domesticated beasts become unmanageable. All reindeer folk know of these two addictions. Reindeer, like men, suffer or enjoy profound mental disturbances after eating the fly agaric. Uh, so Siegel writes that the normal diet of a reindeer is almost entirely composed of lichens. And so, you know, li- life in the uh, tundra can be gastronomically boring sometimes. <laughs> uh, but they they do also appear to have this strong instinct toward the consumption of hallucinogenic mushrooms and the human urine containing the active metabolites of the same mushroom. Uh, so according to Siegel, the Chukchi people of the eastern Arctic Russia region, the Chukchi Peninsula, uh, sometimes take fly agaric intentionally, which leads to, quote, elation, sedation, colored visions, and hallucinations. And the reindeer who can acquire these compounds through raw mushrooms or human urine, quote, become just as drunk and have just as great a thirst. At night, they are noisy and keep running around the tents in the expectation of being given the longed-for fluid. And when some is spilled out in the snow, they start quarreling, Tearing away from each other, the clumps of snow moistened with it. And that's another quote from Wasson. Uh, One report, quote, stresses the passion of the reindeer for human urine is so intense that it is likely to make it dangerous to relieve (laughs) oneself in the open when there are reindeer around. (laughs) Uh, There's also some scant evidence that reindeer who ingest these compounds subsequently isolate themselves from the herd. But again, the evidence here is not clear uh, and self-isolating behavior could have other causes, though this lines up with other observations
3: that Siegel makes. Yeah, Wasson did a lot of work uh, re- uh, regarding Fly Agaric. Uh And uh, this was, you know, an extremely ancient shamanistic intoxicant that was used by the uh, uh, Tungusica tribes of ancient Siberia. And he even presented it as a potential candidate for soma. Uh, soma was this mystical substance that was consumed in Vedic India and, uh, and it's been interpreted. Uh, nobody's quite sure what exactly it was, but it's in. It's been interpreted as having been opium, cannabis, ergot, uh, ephedra is a strong candidate that you often uh, see discussed, and then sometimes the case is made for psilocybin as well. Uh, and, it, and it may have been different substances at different times too. Mm. That's always important to keep in mind. Uh, McKenna, of course, makes an argument in his book for psilocybin, and that it spends a lot of time. He spends a lot of time with that. But, but Soma is certainly a fascinating substance to try and unravel because it was an important Indo European substance, again described in the Vedas. It was also seems to be the same thing as uh, a Homa, which was an important pre Zoroastrian uh, substance in Persia. And it was attributed with all sorts of mystical and curative properties. It was quote the pillar of the world. Wow. And uh, and some still make a case for psychedelic substances being in play here, while others uh, are kind of strongly in the ephedra uh, realm. So seeing it more as a, like a purely a stimulant.
4: Yeah, that's interesting. And, it, and honestly, I really did not know much about fly agaric before uh, before looking at this. Mm-hmm. So.
3: Oh yeah, there's a. Uh, if I recall correctly, there are even uh, people who um, make interesting commentary about Santa Claus and flying reindeer. Oh yes, yeah, in relation yes. to this, I've read about this. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, the, the myth of the flying reindeer comes from them eating these mushrooms or eating the urine of people who have eaten the mushrooms and and loosing the bonds of Earth's gravity. Yeah. So Siegel actually looks at a number of other recorded patterns of self-administration of psychoactive substances in animals. Uh, and another example he gives is the mongoose, hmm. which has been reported to seek out hallucinogenic toads and other prey containing potentially psychoactive compounds during hunting, even when other prey are available. Uh, so, <laughs> to read this quote Some mongooses in the West Indies and the Hawaiian Islands apparently ingest Bufo marinus toads, which I should add um, are now known as the Rinella marina toads, the cane toad, the scourge of Australia, which we've talked about. A, In a recent episode about cannibalism, or almost cannibalism, because Mm -hmm. apparently these toads, uh, you know, they like to eat their own tadpoles and juveniles. But these toads, uh, quote, contain the hallucinogen uh, bufotinine. And to continue, this phenomenon is something of a mystery, since other toads, as well as other natural prey, are more abundant in these regions— while it is not known if there are psychoactive effects resulting from such ingestions, the mongoose goes out of its way to ingest a variety of psychoactive compounds and poisons, including the poison bulb of scorpions and the sting, uh, which uh, he quotes another author, uh, which it seems to consider a bon bouche.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's interesting considering, you know, that the mongoose uh, is invasive. Uh, it was introduced to Hawaii as well as, you know, other... Other uh, places uh, such as the Bahamas, Cuba, Jamaica, et cetera. And then the, the the cane toad as well, right? Yeah, exactly. The cane toad, I think,
4: is originally native to South America primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not it for all of the potential animal self-administrations of psychedelic compounds that have been recorded by you know people observing animal behavior. Just a few quick notes mentioned in a little article in the Pharmaceutical Journal in 2010 by Andrew Haynes, which has a truly horrible title <laughs> that I'm not going to read. And I'm going to assume was assigned by like a web editor. <laughs> it mentioned something about animal
3: junkies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a different time.
4: Okay, so a few examples mentioned here are apparently that bighorn sheep of the Canadian Rockies uh, apparently seek out and consume psychoactive lichen. Quote, in scraping it off the rock surface, they can wear their teeth down to the gums. ugh. ugh. Uh, and in the rainforests of South America, apparently jaguars are known to sometimes gnaw on the roots and bark of the yagé plant. Oh, which, this
3: is the uh, this is uh, the, the the plant that is uh, from, from which DMT is is derived.
4: Yeah, it's the the plant used in the making of ayahuasca tea. Mm-hmm. And the jaguars apparently tend to uh, so after they gnaw on this plant, they have been recorded acting playful and kind of kittenish. <laughs> uh, and some wild animals in Africa, including boars, porcupines, and some primates like mandrills are known to dig up and eat the hallucinogenic roots of the aboga
3: plant. I love the, the idea of a jaguar uh, consuming this and just kind of being, it's almost like it's eating catnip or something. It's just a little playful. Uh-huh. When, when the jaguar is considered such a, a spiritual animal in the traditions of uh, like Amazonian people, and it's like it's the kind of spirit that you would perhaps encounter uh, while on an ayahuasca journey.
4: Well, this has even been hypothesized. I, this is certainly not known, but it's mm-hmm. been speculated that maybe the consumption of ayahuasca as a sacred rite came from observing the jaguar doing this. And so, like, the idea is that, you know, the jaguar is this powerful a spiritual beast and that its behaviors might have been copied by humans.
3: Yeah, this this is something important we didn't uh, mention in the first episode. We talked about humans gradually figuring out what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Mm -hmm. But, of course, uh, humans can also look to see what other animals are capable of eating, which is not always a definite sign that you should eat it. There are things that animals can eat and certain species can eat that we absolutely cannot. Yeah, they might have different enzymes and stuff that we don't. But then again— If you see an animal completely avoiding a particular substance, you know, that might be a clear sign that you should avoid it as well, or perhaps that the magic of cooking is necessary in order to to harness it. Mm -hmm. And then if you see some sort of peculiar behavior taking place after an animal consumes something well, Maybe more study is required.
4: Now, just the fact that an animal will self-administer a drug is clearly not evidence that that drug is 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 a good thing or a healthy thing for that animal to consume.
3: Right, I and mean, I mean, we've all seen our pets consume things. <laughs> right, that, 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 you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, making a wise choice in uh, its an environment. Or
4: I think about the uh, there are lab studies where you know mice, lab mice, will have the option to self-administer addictive drugs, you know, mm-hmm. they can self-administer morphine or whatever. And sometimes this is used uh, in studies to figure out how to break addictions, like what kinds of opportunities when offered to mice will be more attractive to mice than just trying to self-administer more doses of morphine.
3: Right. But then again, you know, we're talking about like morphine uh, in, in like a drip or something, right? Uh-huh. So, which is not a, not something they would encounter in the natural world, obviously. Right and and also any of these and, and
4: to be i just wanted to say i used morphine as a just an example there i don't remember what exactly the compound was they studied but it's something like that
3: right well it seems like a lot of those studies do use synthetic drug compounds so it's mm-hmm. not like say we put uh, we put a a mouse in a, you know a small ecosphere uh with some psychedelic mushrooms and just see to see just how much it would eat you know it's something like that right uh, it tends to be like a drip of some sort of synthetic Uh, version, some artificial uh, uh, substance that's created from uh, a naturally occurring uh, uh, substance.
4: But yeah, so the question is like with these psychedelics, uh, self-administration of psychedelics by animals, why do they do it? Why do they seek uh, hallucinogenic substances? It would seem in many cases to be maladaptive. Now, we do have the one hypothesis already that there are perhaps ways in which some psychedelic compounds could alter brain function in a way that heightens sensory perception. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it helps in hunting by making, you know, by giving you stronger attention to your olfactory senses uh, and makes you better at sniffing out prey. That's a possibility. Uh, You know, it's also possible, I've seen some authors speculate, that maybe they consume these substances out of some equivalent to the human experience of boredom. You know, they're they're seeking novel experiences, which does that is a drive. The general drive to seek novel experiences is something that has, in some cases, an evolutionary purpose. We've talked on the show before about neophilia, right? Mm-hmm. the The idea of like animals that seek novel experiences or go toward unfamiliar objects may often more often put themselves at risk of danger. But they also set themselves up for bigger rewards. So if you're in a you're a raccoon living in a city and you approach an unfamiliar object in a parking lot, it could be full of milkshake, it could be full of fries, but it also could kill you. You know, so it's sort of like a higher stakes way of playing the the life game you know you get uh, bigger risks bigger rewards yeah
3: and of course another example just a quick one that to throw out is uh is just the obvious consumption of uh of, of overripe fruit mm-hmm. uh which can uh, in which fermentation has taken place and you essentially have naturally occurring alcohol yeah not the synthetic uh version of this that we have uh, today uh, you know, anytime you go to uh, you know pick up beer or wine or hard liquor or what have you, but uh, just well, uh, the fermented fruit that animals uh, do still do eat uh, when they when they find it. Well, I don't. Uh,
4: to what extent are that? Some, I mean, those are still made by fermentation, right?
3: What? You're talking about beer and wine? Beer and
4: wine? Is there something going on there I don't know about? I thought it was still fermentation was the process by which the alcohol was generated.
3: Yeah, but it's it's different than than the fruit. Like, you yeah. know, it's it is That's true. It, you're not eating the grape. Right. Know. Like, yeah, there's a basically we've taken the naturally occurring um, uh, fermentation process in these fruits and we have we have harnessed it and uh, We've uh, we, we've learned how to, uh, how to concentrate it. So, like a, a bottle of Everclear is a is a rather I, different uh, scenario compared to just uh, some you know some fermented fruit uh, that's uh, littered on the ground beneath a tree.
4: Yeah, and alcohol is clearly a case where animals will often have often been observed self administering mm-hmm. a drug. Now we don't usually think of alcohol as psychedelic. It's no, it's, it's not it's really, not. but uh, but like you know elephants will seek out fermented fruits. Uh, some primates will. It's a common thing. Right. Um, uh, there's another question is, I guess this is sort of similar to the, the thing about, um, seeking novel experiences as a, as a certain instinct, especially in maybe mammal brains. I'm sure some, uh, probably some bird brains too, right? You know, uh, uh, but uh, what if there's some drive in maybe like some mammal brains and some bird brains that seeks altered states, states of consciousness as a form of what's known in uh, some of the literature as de-patterning, uh, there is a tendency toward habit breaking that is made possible by some of these drugs, which I think we'll get into more uh, of the research about that in the next oh, episode. Yes, we definitely will. And that's a very important therapeutic use of it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the early research on the use of psychedelics in a therapeutic setting was about, say, breaking addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a form of habit breaking or de-patterning of, of mental processes or mental behaviors uh, and and I wonder if it's possible there is some kind of instinct for that in other animal minds, not just in human brains. A tendency to seek out chemicals that allow you to adapt to new ways of doing things. Could this actually be a drive that's selected for? Uh, again, that's speculative, but it, it's interesting to consider. But um, maybe we should get into the history of human use here of, of these substances.
3: Yeah, because certainly human use of psychedelics does go back to ancient and prehistoric times. Like that is that is that that is universally uh, accepted. Yeah. Uh, you know, the key sus- substances uh, mentioned previously can be found across the continents. And as humans travel, they continually encounter new species as well. I mean, there are parts of the world where there does seem to be more of a concentration of them, mm-hmm. such as, uh, you know, uh, Meso in South America. Uh, But you do find psychedelic substances all over the place. Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, I think Michael Pollan in his book, How to Change Your Mind, mm -hmm. which we mentioned in the last episode and is one of our major sources here, uh, which is fantastic. It is a wonderful book. Um, You know, he argues, I'm not sure if he's correct, but he argues that basically pretty much every culture in the world uh, has some kind of tradition of using – Compounds from natural plants and substances to alter consciousness with pretty much the only exception being some Arctic peoples. Right. Uh,
3: because they didn't
4: – nothing like that grew around there.
3: Right. Uh, but but even then, I mean, we have the Siberian uh, use of the uh, the fly agarics. So, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, and then the other side of that being, like, to what extent did they stick with it? To what extent did did they lose the substance? Did the substance fall out of favor? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, some of that we saw with with soma example. But uh, I was reading around about this uh, in the aforementioned sources, but also uh, I picked up a a book I often turn to on our other show, Invention, Mm -hmm. which is The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. It's a classic. Uh, yes, it's really good. It's written by uh, Brian M. Fagan, who is um, just a you know a, an authority in ancient technology and ancient invention, and it, it provides just overviews of various uh, you know cultural inventions, technological inventions, etc. And uh, uh, one of the chapters he writes uh, with Richard uh, Rudgley, who is an author of several books on the history of psychedelic substances and uh, and other substances in human culture. Mm-hmm. And um, they they point out that uh, basically without written reports to go on, you know, with truly ancient people, we we tend to have to look for three types of evidence – for the consumption of uh, drugs or some sort of a psychedelic substance, right? Because how do we know what they were taking? Yeah. Right. So we have to look for, first of all for botanical remains associated with burials, burials or, ar- or agriculture. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, do we find the botanical remains of say cannabis uh, inside of a tomb, or um, you know, among the arche- archaeological remains of an agricultural site? Mm-hmm. The next thing we look for is uh, artifacts that contain residues. Uh, so is there a residue of, say, cannabis in this device? And then clearly, if if the device itself looks like it was clearly used for the consumption of drugs, such as a pipe, right? Uh, which you know some of you might be saying, well, a pipe could be used for just uh, tobacco. Well, bingo. Tobacco, also a drug, so that counts. Right, Uh, And then, of course, uh, artistic motifs that depict mind-altering plants or fungi. Uh, That is another big one.
4: Though I will say a complication there is that very often with the artistic motifs, there's argument about exactly what they represent. Like there are people who make the case that there are Stone Age cave paintings that indicate the consumption of psilocybin mushrooms, but I think that's not and that's not clear. Not everybody
3: agrees on what's being represented there. right? And you get into complex issues with symbolism too. I mean basically you could you could have a, something that looks like a mushroom in an ancient work and one side might say, well, that's a mushroom. And the other side might say, that is a phallus. And then others might say, well, this could be very much be both. And then what does that say that the phallus and the, the mushroom are combined in the same artistic tradition, et cetera?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, for, for instance, just to put, you know, to to drive home some of the the periods of time we're talking about here. Um, We know that domesticated opium pops up in the 6th millennium BCE in the Western Mediterranean based on Neolithic burial sites. And then uh, a cannabis pipe uh, uh, cup dates back to the 3rd millennium BCE in Central Asia. And then we have uh, peyote cactus imagery in what is now Mexico and Texas from 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. We also know that the Aztecs used multiple different psychoactive plants for shamanistic purposes, drawing on the long traditional usage of these substances by uh, other uh, peoples of Meso- and South America. And then there are, for instance, the statues of the Aztec god Xochipilli that clearly feature the motif of psychoactive plants.
4: Yeah, Xochipilli is an interesting figure. Uh, I I was going to say something a bit about him later, but I guess maybe I'll mention it now. We're going to talk a good bit about the use of psilocybin mushrooms in Mesoamerica Uh, But psilocybin mushrooms are not the only psychoactive substances that were used by the Mesoamericans in their religion, uh, such as the Aztecs. Plenty of other plants played a role as well. And this Aztec god, Xochipilli, uh, his name means something like the prince of flowers, which is great. Yeah. But he's been uh, suggested by uh, several scholars as sort of the embodiment of a number of sacred entheogenic plants known to the Aztecs, including, you know, everything like morning glory and tobacco and a number of flowers and And trees that have some degree or another of psychoactive compounds in them.
3: I'll throw in real quick just to to summarize, though, Fagan and Rudgley uh, point out that uh, psychedelic substances are, quote, both deeply embedded in many cultures in prehistoric and ancient Eurasia and intimately bound up with their ceremonial and religious life, and that also likewise in the Americas, it was, quote, both prevalent and ancient.
4: Yeah, uh, I think that's clear. And that's an interesting thing What you know, we were talking about the drug war mentality earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I remember when I was growing up was that there was a clear cultural antagonism between drug use on one hand and religious authority on the other hand. It seemed like one of the main things, one of the main cultural messages I remember hearing From religious authorities in America, I guess, which would primarily be, you know, uh, Christian authorities was Mm -hmm. against the use of drugs, which is at a surface level kind of counterintuitive because on, you know, the use of psychedelic substances goes so far back in religious history with, you know, many of the religions of the world. And because we talked about it in the last episode, a very common response to people taking psychoactive substances is not saying like, "Well, well, now I'm going to discard my religion and just throw myself fully into secular modernity and mm-hmm. become an atheist or something." No, it tends more often to encourage people to think more spiritually, to be to be more believing in uh, something beyond the material world.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this also reminds me too that, you know, growing up in the the with the war of drugs mentality is that when you did learn about uh religions, modern religions that incorporate uh some uh drug, mm-hmm. uh it, it felt like shocking. Like the first time you, you heard about uh the Rastafari faith. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you were like, Whoa, they 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 smoke cannabis as part of their their faith, you know, that that seems shocking. Or you hear about traditional um uh, Native American groups that would utilize uh, substances uh, like, say, peyote, and and that would seem shocking. And it, of course, it shouldn't because, again, all these different um, uh, traditional and ancient religions seem to have been rooted at least in part in these substances.
4: Yeah, I'd say non-drug-based religions are the exception, not the rule historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, But then again, I mean, I think at, at a deeper level in, of analysis, you can kind of see why There's been that conflict between, say, uh, you know, especially a culturally dominant uh, religious authority and the use of psychedelic substances, even though they might encourage general spiritual feelings and beliefs. I think in some cases the religious condemnation of psychedelic use might be rooted in the anti-heterodoxy sort of impulse, you know, meaning like you don't want people – Thinking they've received new information from God or the gods, you know, right. you don't want people thinking that, like, wait, you know, the dogmas of my church aren't aren't all there is. There, there's, I'm getting new messages, things are because then you can't control doctrine. Like a common feature, I guess, of of monotheistic religion today is to sort of have a set law and to say, okay, we, you know, we we have received all of the revelations and the rules and the communications from the divine in the past. And now everything's locked down and there will be, you know, the phone lines are cut. There is no further
3: revelation. Right. If God is still speaking, that can be a dangerous thing uh, to some people, especially the people that are in a position of power. Yeah. But it also seems like the kind of thing that is more of a risk if your religion has drifted away from the sorts of experiences – you know, drug-related or otherwise that enable that kind of experience. Yeah. You know, so we'll get into an example of that, I think, in a bit. Uh, but then again, even without, you know, drugs and all, I mean, heresies are always uh, an issue to some sort of established religion. Somebody is going to come along that has a new vision of how this faith should work, mm-hmm. uh, how it's going to work with, a, uh, you know, with, uh, with society, with culture, with the individual, and that is always going to be dangerous to, to somebody.
4: Yeah. uh, And I'd say maybe one other reason you can see the the religious opposition to drug use is probably just uh, something more rooted in what we were talking about at the beginning of of the episode, which is like a failure to make crucial distinctions between the the effects of these different compounds and how they play out in culture and in people's lives. Right. Like uh, I can understand – Why, if you have a religion that's trying to encourage social orderliness, why it might be against, say, the consumption of alcohol. You know, like, alcohol is is just crime fuel. Alcohol is this, like, hugely, this this substance, which, you know, despite it, I enjoy having a beer or or cocktail or something. But you can understand why the temperance movement arose. You know, people were seeing, like, alcohol is... It, it, it's, it's running rampant through the culture. And in some ways, it still is.
3: Yeah, it is a very destructive force. Another issue, of course, is, you know, we, talk, describe pre, we used to, talked about uh, previously the description of these substances as being boundary dissolving. Yeah. And a lot of times, boundaries are very important in an organized religion. The yeah. boundary between the, uh, the in-group and the, the outsider, the boundaries between particular castes or divisions within a particular uh, religious group. And so, yeah, you, you, to the people uh, controlling the religion, the people, uh, you know, in, in the upper uh, uh, echelon of the religion, uh, boundary dissolution could be dangerous.
4: Yeah, I, I can absolutely see that. In the same way that you might view alcohol in as crime fuel, psychedelics are in some ways heterodoxy fuel, or just general uh, questioning and <laughs> uh, dissolution of, of established order fuel.
3: Yeah, I, the way McKenna put it is, you know, he spends a lot of time talking about. Um, uh, cooperative uh, societies and then uh, dominator societies and, mm. uh, and uh, his critique was that alcohol is like the the ideal drug of a dominator society mm. that those that and along with stimulants
4: yeah well i think we should take a quick break and when we come back we can discuss a little more of the uh, more recent history of psilocybin mushrooms especially in mesoamerica
0: l-a-s-i-k
3: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. Uh, we're, we're looking to Mesoamerica now, which again is a, is a part of the world where you see so many different powerful psychedelic substances, really some of the most powerful naturally occurring psychedelic substances on Earth can be found uh, in this part of the world. And of course, this is also part of the world with a very uh, complex and bloody history uh, and uh, and where we see this prime clashing of cultures uh, as uh, Western colonialism uh, enters the picture.
4: Yeah, exactly right. So uh, the mycologist Paul Stamets, we were talking about how far back uh, the use of psychedelic substances goes. In his book, Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World, uh, Stamets argues that the sacramental use of psychoactive mushrooms goes back at least 7,000 years Probably extends into Paleolithic times. We don't know exactly for sure. But one of the most well documented religious uses of psychedelic mushrooms is the apparently long running use in Mexico and Central America of a species of psilocybe, now believed to be psilocybe mexicana, uh, that was then known to the Aztecs as Teononacotl, which was historically translated as God's flesh. But I've also seen translated, I think, more recently and simply as the god mushroom. Hmm. Uh, So there might be some blurring of the line there whether a word means flesh or mushroom. There might be some overlap there. But we don't know exactly how far back the use of psilocybes among the Mesoamericans goes. Earlier, uh, you mentioned, you know, the art motifs is one clue. And there are archaeological artifacts found in Central America, I think primarily in Guatemala, now known as the mushroom stones. Mm. And these are attributed to the Mayan civilization. They they depict humans, animals, and gods as sort of hybrid mushroom beings with mushroom stems and caps erupting up out of their bodies, kind of like the Lohenmensch, you know, the Lion Man statuette. Uh, from Europe, showing the the humanoid figure with the lion's head, showing early ideation about monsters and fantasy hybrids, except this would be like the fungus minch.
3: Oh, wow. This is like in uh, in Dungeons & Dragons. This would be the Myconids, which are the mushroom people of the Underdark. Oh, what
4: what's that movie you you were telling me about a long time ago? It was like Ma-
3: Matango, Matango, yeah, this the is mushroom a, a island Japanese horror film about uh, uh, these uh, humanoid mushrooms and this infection that turns people into mushrooms, shambling mushroom creatures.
4: Oh yeah, they're they're also uh, that's a central conceit of the setting of the video game The Last of Us. Which it, oh yes, yeah, the it, Cordyceps, uh, yeah. Cordyceps yeah, invades humans. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is a slightly different thing because it's not showing like fungus erupting as a as a disease out of people, but more like there are these, uh, these fungus beings that seem, I don't know, they're generally depicted as kind of like serene and like this is a good thing. We don't know exactly what these ancient mushroom stones signify, but many scholars have interpreted them as reflections of the religious significance of psychedelic mushrooms for the Mayan culture. And so much of the world became aware of the existence and use of psychedelic mushrooms during the 1950s due to the work of people like the biologist Richard E. Schultes, who studied indigenous people's uses of psychoactive plants, especially in Mexico and in the Amazon basin. And public widespread awareness of the uses of psychedelic mushrooms in southern Mexico, specifically uh, Teo owes a lot to an article published in Life magazine. yes. In May 1957, written by a then vice president of J.P. Morgan, the (laughs) the investment bank and financial services company, Uh, this vice president of J.P. Morgan was named R. Gordon Wasson, who was also a mycologist. He and his wife were both uh, very interested in mushrooms, Uh, and he happened to be a mushroom enthusiast. I think he was pushing a kind of personal theory that mushrooms were the genesis of all religions and spiritual beliefs. But this article from Life magazine in 1957 was called The Discovery of Mushrooms That Cause Strange Visions and then also with the title Seeking the Magic Mushroom. I think one was the cover title and one was on the article. But I want to stress again that despite the magazine editor's word choice there of the discovery of mushrooms that cause strange visions, Wasson did not in any way actually discover psilocybin mushrooms – They were known to the indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America for hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, They just weren't widely known about in many other cultures in the 20th century beyond that.
3: Now, I think it is important to note, too, that people like Wasson and Schultz, uh, these were a different breed of professional. Like so, so much of the time, when, when we think about the emergence of, uh, of psychedelics, we think mm. of uh, unfairly. We think of Timothy Leary, and uh-huh. uh, or even you know we think uh, in more in like a, a '90s context. We think of Terence McKenna. People were more uh, you know embodiments of counterculture, mm. and that is not uh, what these individuals were about. In fact, I believe it was uh, it was Wasson who really did not like uh, what he saw in in the counterculture. Uh, You know, he was kind of anti-hippie. Oh, I don't
4: know, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Weren't you saying something about McKenna talking about Schultes?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. He he pointed out that Schultes was was pretty much the complete opposite of someone like Timothy Leary. That he was a, you know he was a botanist and a scientist, uh, I and mean, he was at Harvard at the same time while Leary was approaching psychedelics from a social science perspective, but also with arguably far less dedication to the rigors of scientific investigation and with a strong inclination towards celebrities, celebrity and the trappings of guru. Yeah. But Schultes was uh, also highly influential on a whole range of people, including E.O. Wilson, but also people like William. Burroughs. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So, uh, again, the the just the the impact of their work uh, is is essential when you consider like all strains of uh, knowledge and interest in psychedelic substances.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, so one question you might have is like if there were peoples of especially like southern Mexico in Oaxaca who were practicing the religious use of psilocybin mushrooms. Um, this question of, like, why didn't more people outside of the region know about this? And I think there's a very good reason, actually, why some of the indigenous peoples of southern Mexico would keep these mushrooms and their uses a secret as a sort of underground parallel ritual to the Catholicism that took hold of the region beginning in the 16th century. And that m- reason was psychedelic mushrooms and their religious uses had been brutally persecuted hundreds of years before by the Christian conquistadors in what the ethnobotanist Jonathan Ott has called the pharmocratic Inquisition. <laughs> uh, basically, when the Spanish attacked and began to colonize Mexico and Central America uh, under Cortez in the early 16th century, the Catholic missionaries among them became aware that some parts of Aztec religion— relied on the consumption of fungi that allowed the Aztecs to actually see and receive guidance from their gods and so the these ritual feasts of the Teonanacatl would sometimes be used for the purposes of divination where you'd try to like receive guidance from the gods or for other purposes like ritual healing and the mushroom rites were witnessed and described by a Spanish Franciscan friar named Bernardino de Sahagún. This is a section of de Sahagún's work that is also quoted in Pollen. Quote, These they ate before dawn with honey, and they also drank cacao before dawn. The mushrooms they ate with honey, and when they began to get heated from them, they began to dance, and some sang, and some wept. Some cared not to sing, but would sit down in their rooms and stayed there, pensive-like." And some saw in a vision that they were dying, and they wept. And others saw in a vision that some wild beast was eating them. Others saw in a vision that they were taking captives in war. Others saw in a vision that they were to commit adultery, and that their heads were to be bashed in, therefore. Then, when the drunkenness of the mushrooms had passed, they spoke one with another about their visions that they had seen.
3: Oh, wow. Uh, I I also love the, the mention of the honey. Because I think there's sort of two uh, avenues here. Like, one is that, of course, uh, some many of these psychedelic substances, especially the mushrooms, are quite pungent in their taste, and there's something you know you need to mask it in some way or another. Yeah. But also, I've read how honey uh, could have been used traditionally to preserve uh, psychedelic substances, particularly mushrooms. Yeah. And that uh, you and that even there's this idea that certain mead traditions arose out of that, um, you know, which of course is the, the fermentation process with the honey to produce an alcohol.
4: Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I had had not heard that, Uh, but so uh, you might expect what the Catholic reaction to this is. And in fact, I bet something some of this reaction is coming through even in the way that Bernardino de Sahagun describes these experiences, because you notice. He tends to emphasize what he thinks are these like negative hallucinogenic experiences mm-hmm. about war and about death and, and about being eaten by an animal. The Catholic missionaries viewed the Aztec consumption of this and other psychedelic plants as a form of depraved pagan idolatry that needed to be wiped from the face of the
3: earth. It's basically the same anti-psychedelic messaging that you saw in the 60s, uh, right? This yeah. Saying like, the kids are taking this and they're having bad trips. And yeah. They're forcing themselves through
4: keyholes. They're, they're picking up the axe and going, going after, you know, the grandparents. Right.
3: They're confusing a baby with a basketball and raising the basketball as their own and uh <laughs> and creating a college fund for the basketball. Clearly <laughs> this this has to be stopped.
4: Yeah. Uh so it's exactly right. So yeah, the the Catholic missionaries wrote that they believe the consumption of teonanacatl was a way for the Aztecs to receive messages from the devil and from demons. And of course, it must have seemed especially perverse to the uh, to the missionary mindset that at the at the time the Aztec priests would have been understood to be eating this thing called God's flesh, given the parallels to the Catholic Rite of Holy Communion, in which you would eat bread and drink wine representing the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Catholic missionaries tried to put down the ceremonies of the psilocybes, and they encouraged the substitution of what Jonathan Ott referred to seemingly by contrast as the placebo sacraments of the Catholic Eucharist. Hmm. But fortunately, despite the persecution by the Catholic colonizers, these mushroom rituals did continue in secret through to the modern day especially in more remote and mountainous regions, uh, like in southern Mexico and Oaxaca.
3: Now, questions of how they use these substances were used as a fascinating subject unto itself, and one we're you know, not going to have time to fully examine. I mean, whole books have been written describing this. Uh, you know, it's, uh, basically, the idea is that set and setting would again be pri- of primary importance here.
4: Yeah, we talked about that in the last episode, but yeah. the importance of the surroundings and the mindset going in.
3: Right. And then some of the more fa- fascinating examples uh, that we see in the amazon you know where ayahuasca is brewed from the the vine uh, uh, etc uh, uh, but uh, you know they, they also turned to other substances as well as well and they also turned to dreams in the shamanistic uh, practice which i think is interesting as well like it, it's not like the these were the that uh, the, these substances were the only tool that was utilized they would also refer to dreams and then in, in terms of the shamanistic use of the substances themselves, it's, it, you might think that such practices would simply involve a shaman giving you a substance, guiding you through the experience to help you with your problem. And this is true. This is what you would see. And you see this reflected in the Western, uh, some of the Western research that we'll be discussing later. You see it in some of the, the, the uh, you know, the counterculture and underground uses of it. But in the classic scenarios, the shaman uh, was sometimes the one to ingest the substance alone and solve your problem for you, which uh, seems kind of counterproductive or counterintuitive at first, right? The idea that you would you would go to the shaman and the shaman would take a psychedelic right. uh, in order to help you with your problem, and you wouldn't take anything. Uh, but this could well be the case in some of these uh, situations. You know, the the shaman would step outside of of their own self uh, in order to tackle your problem head on and help you solve it.
4: Yeah, exactly. So so to finish the story, uh, in the 1950s, this J.P. Morgan banker we mentioned, right, R. Gordon Wasson, he traveled to Oaxaca in Mexico, and, and he met with an experienced psilocybin shaman known as a curandera, or which means uh, like a healer, named Maria Sabina, who allowed him to participate in a psilocybin healing and divination ritual known as a velada, uh, to the Mazatec people, and Wasson wrote about this experience in that Life magazine article we mentioned in 1957. And subsequently, scientific interest in the mushroom skyrocketed. People eventually sent samples of the fruiting bodies of the mushrooms to Albert Hofmann, the man who first isolated LSD 25 from ergot rye and discovered its effects the decade before. And Hofmann uh, and colleagues were able to isolate the psychoactive compounds in the mushroom. And of course, Hofmann had to try some out himself. And for a while before the anti-counterculture backlash and the drug war crackdown, psilocybin was researched by psychologists, psychiatrists as a potential tool for understanding human cognition, expanding consciousness, and treating addiction and mental illness. But, of course, then came the dark days, right, beginning in the 1970s where the association of psilocybin with hippie culture and recreational drug use created this stigma around research. Legal barriers went up that made research more practically difficult. And a lot of mainstream research uh, attention just turned away from psilocybin in particular uh, and psychedelics in general. And I guess that's where we'll have to stop for this
3: time until we come back next time. Yeah, so the journey continues. The trip is not over. Uh, It will continue in episode three. Uh, of, of this journey so in the meantime if you want to check out more episodes of stuff to blow your mind uh, check out past episodes that have dealt with psychedelics uh, such as the the timothy leary episode the the, the john c Lilly episodes uh, or, or some of these other episodes we've alluded to uh, you'll find them there that's the mothership stuff to blow and if you want to support the show the best thing you can do is to tell your friends about us and also rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so so you know, i don't know how you listen to your podcasts maybe you, you find them carved in into- a piece of wood. Uh, you know, may, you probably get them through some sort of service online or on your phone. Uh, wherever it is, uh, leave us some stars, leave a nice review. It really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our
4: audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.